Most of us have probably thought about trying to get on a healthier diet. If you're anything like me, you've searched how to kind of get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of foods with the greatest health benefits. Maybe you've thought about making kale smoothies and thought better of it. Um, <laughs> eating lots of fish or learning how to make bread out of almond flour. The funny thing is, is that in looking over all those options that can take a considerable effort, we overlook our most basic necessity, water. Our bodies are 60% water, and we don't usually drink as much as we should. It's fundamental to Tom Brady's diet plan. He drinks 2.3 gallons every day. <laughs> yeah, I'm not an expert. I'm not a, I am not a medical expert. I am just a pastor. <laughs> so take that up with Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could have all the kale, fish, and almond flour in the world. But if you don't drink water, maybe not 2.3 gallons amount of water, but a lot more water than you're drinking, you're toast. Water is fundamental to health. When we read the Bible, we find all kinds of commands. From commandments not to steal in the Old Testament to commands to forgive in the New Testament. And like various healthy foods, they're all good. They're all very good. But in the face of them all, we can feel overwhelmed. They can start to feel like a dreaded list of rules. And we can begin to feel this way because we are missing something fundamental. Something that is staring us in the face but which we overlook. We learn what we're missing from Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees here in Matthew 22. Now, you'll recall that um, Jesus has just had an interaction with the Sadducees on the question of the resurrection. And um, the Sadducees had posed this question about the resurrection to him in hopes of tripping him up, kind of making him look foolish. They had asked, well, what's going to happen when uh, a woman is resurrected who has been married to seven husbands previously? Who's, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus goes on and says, well, that's not how it works because in the age to come, there is going to be no marriage because we're going to be like the angels. Not that we're going to be angels, but we're going to be like the angels and that angels don't get married. Um, and they were amazed by his response. Um, he silenced them. So here in verses 34 and 40, the Pharisees, which you'll remember are kind of the theological opposites of the Sadducees. They do believe in resurrection and a bunch of other things that the Sadducees don't believe. They decide, okay, we're going to have a go and try to trip up Jesus. And they tap uh, their top law, law expert, kind of their heavy hitter, to uh, go to Jesus with a question. And they go to him with this question in order to test him. Now, this word test has a little bit of a negative 
connotation to it. We've seen it been uh, used previously in Matthew um, to describe the approach that the Pharisees took in asking Jesus some questions. We also saw in verse 18 the, the word used trap, uh, how they tried to trap Jesus, and that's actually the same uh, word in the Greek for test. Um, and in fact, if you go back to Matthew 4.1, what's interesting is we see that this is the same word that is used um, when it describes the temptation that Jesus experienced by the devil. The word tempt and test are, are interchangeable often um, because they're coming from the same Greek word. So in Matthew 4.1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this Pharisee is coming to Jesus with the idea of, like, I'm finally going to get him. And this is the question that he asks. He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now again, this is not just some mere quiz. This question is being asked in the hopes of tripping Jesus up. And the play here is that in getting Jesus to say that one commandment is more important, most important, that it'll look like Jesus is denying the importance of other commandments. So, for instance, if Jesus says, like, well, the most important is to have no other gods before me, and they'll say, well, what about honoring parents? Um, and I think we're kind of familiar this, with this in the political sphere. You can imagine a reporter asking you know, a political candidate, what's the most important issue fa facing our country? And then, of course, the pol politician gives their answer, and then everyone's like, well, what about this, that, and the other? Why didn't you think that was important? And, and so this is kind of the angle they're taking. They want to they create some trouble for Jesus. It's the kind of question that Jesus must give the perfectly correct answer to. Anything that's only close to the mark will open them up to all kinds of criticism. So the response that Jesus offers brings together two passages. Um, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says that it's on these two commands that all of the law hangs. So the first command, love God with everything that you are, um, is actually taken from a passage that is kind of in plain sight for the Jewish people because it's taken from the Jewish Shema, um, which they would uh, recite twice each day, um, which is taken from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The idea is, is that this is a very important commandment. So much that you should tie it on your head kind of thing. Put it on your, door, on, on your doorway and actually um, 
some, some followers of Judaism actually do literally uh, manifest this in some of the garbs that they wear um, in, in obedience to the Shema. So this is the first one. The second one is taken from Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we have love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, basically with everything that you are. That's the point. It's not trying... And, and Jesus referring to that, he's not trying to dig out down into the nitty-gritty of what each of those aspects look like. It's the idea that you're supposed to love God with your whole person, with everything that you have. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has indicated that it's important to love others. We see this in Matthew 7:12. He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In Matthew 19, 19, he says, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. So these are the two greatest brought together. But why is love so great? Why is this command to love so great? The command to love is so great because love leads to obedience. Love leads to the fulfillment of the law. All the law hangs on these two. All the other commands of the law are the symptoms, the evidences of someone who loves God and loves others. And the only way to fulfill the law is by love. We see this attested to throughout the New Testament. Um, we look at John 14, 15. Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is, is the anticipated outcome of someone who truly loves Christ, of someone who truly loves God. In Galatians 5, 14, Paul says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You go to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul pretty much says the same thing. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and what other other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And if you stick around after, after service for Sermon Circle, we're actually going to dig into some of the Ten Commandments and kind of consider it from this angle. Well, listen to what Paul's saying here. He's saying that you list all the, those core commandments that are listed in the Ten Commandments. If you just love your neighbor, you're going to fulfill all of those. In James 2.8, the Apostle James calls the love law this. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. The command to love your neighbor is the royal law. It is the law of God's kingdom. 
And the reason why love is the royal law, why it is this law which fulfills all the other's laws, is because love is comprehensive. And we see this when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1-8. And a lot of you have heard this um, maybe uh, quoted like in a marriage ceremony or something like that, which is great. Um, and in fact, um, couples should really try to live up to this. Uh, but sometimes I think kind of the romantic dressing of things um, leads us to kind of overlook the fact that it's really calling for something more than just mere romantic love, but something that is very um, sacrificial, the kind of love that God um, is calling us to. So 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8. This is what Paul has to say. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, that sounds pretty important, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Basically, you're just a bunch of noise. Paul says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Seems rather incredible. I mean, we've heard Jesus not too long ago talking about the faith to move mountains if you just ask God in prayer. That seems pretty powerful, pretty important. But Paul says, no, love is more important. Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. It doesn't matter if you just go through the motions and make a great show of righteousness. If it's lacking in love, it doesn't add up to anything. And then he goes into listing all these different manifestations of love, which kind of, I think, helps clarify why love is just so crucial. It says, love is patient. So if you're not a patient person, the core problem is that you're lacking in love. That's the reason why you're not a patient person. Paul says, love is kind. If you're like, well, I'm not a very kind person, or that person isn't very kind, the core problem is they don't have love. Paul says, love does not envy. So someone who's envious is a person that's lacking love. It does not boast. If someone's boastful, it's because they're lacking love for others. They only really care about themselves. It's not self-seeking. If you're selfish, you don't love. It's not easily angered. If you're an angry person, it's because you're lacking in love. It keeps no record of wrongs. If If you're just a bitter person, you think like, that person did this, that, and the other thing to me, and um, you're just harboring all this anger and bitterness, there's an absence of love. Love does not delight in evil because love only wants the good. It rejoices with the truth. And if you're a person that truly loves, you're going to protect others. You're going to be courageous. You're going to trust. You're going to hope. You're going to persevere. And if you've lived long enough to face some hard times, you know... (laughs) In order to persevere, you need some real substantial love in your life. A love greater than that, greater than just loving yourself, but a love for God and a love for the people that God has put in your life. Paul says, love never fails. That's why love is so crucial. If you just have love, you won't fail. You will succeed. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, 
it will pass away. None of these things compare to having love. And what's really interesting is how, when we look closely, this command to love God and to love others are really intertwined with each other. They're inseparable from each other. The Apostle John testifies to this in 1 John 4, verses 20 through 21. John says, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I think it's pretty common for us to think that we can operate in this kind of fashion where you can say, oh, I I really love God. I'm really devoted to God. I'm in my Bible every day. All that. And yet, I don't have to love that person. I don't have to care about the people in my church. I don't have to care about the people outside of the church, just me and God. That's a lie. You're living a lie. You don't truly love God. Because if you loved God, you would love those who are made in his image. And these are the people who are before you. These are the people that God has put before you to love. If you don't love those whom God loves, then you don't really love God because you don't really know God. You just love a God of your own creation. So when we have this understanding of what love really is, it becomes easy to understand how love truly is the greatest command. It's easy to understand how love really does fulfill the law. But there's an important distinction, I think, that we have to make here, which is that complying with the law does not amount to love. Because some people could perhaps approach the Scripture and look like, okay, if I do all these commands and I obey them, then this all adds up to love. That's not how it works. The command to love exceeds the limits of the law. The law just gives us guidance. It helps, like here, okay, these are some ways in which you can manifest this love. But just obeying all those commands is not the full sum of love. Because God is not interested in our dead compliance. Now, obviously, he's not interested in our rebellion either, like he would like us to comply, but he doesn't just want dead robotic compliance. He wants people who love him and love others. I've got a couple quotes I want to share with you just because I think they're really striking in terms of just how central love truly is for our relationship with God. Church reformer John Calvin has this to say about love. He says, ultimately, the man who comes to obey God will love him first. Notice that ordering there. Love before obedience. He will love him first. Because wicked and sinful inclinations of the flesh turns aside from the right way Moses shows that our lives will only fall duly into place 
when the love of God controls all our emotions. Let us therefore learn that the love of God is the beginning of religion. For God will not have the forced obedience of men, but wishes their service to be free and spontaneous. See, God could have created robots if he wanted to. He would just say, yes, Master, we will do what you say, but that's, that's not what God wanted. He wants us to truly be in relationship with him, and in order for us to be in relationship with him, we need to be able to have freedom. Because freedom gives birth to the possibility of love. This is what God desires of us, that we would love him and then so obey him. Along the same lines, much earlier, church father, St. Augustine, very important theologian who's affected um, so much of the church, has this to say about love. He says, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. I know a few of you are probably familiar with this because I've quoted this a couple of times. But that's how powerful love is. That if we truly love God as we ought, then we will experience perfect freedom and liberty and obedience. And won't be a matter of compliance. Because the desires of our heart will be perfectly aligned with the desires of God's heart. That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to that kind of freedom that we can experience when we're in perfect harmony and unity with him. Now, in some ways, this seems fairly simple. Well, just love. Even though it's simple, we should not think that means it's easy. Because in fact, our history as human beings has proven that it's impossible for us on our own to perfectly love God as we ought and to love others as we ought. Our hearts are wayward. And even for God's chosen people, the people of Israel, this was proven to be the case. The prophet Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, says this in Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. Compliance that's lacking in love. And while they could put on a facade for a good while, the cracks would appear with the people of Israel. They would go after other gods. They would nurture injustice and greed. And the same is true for all of us. And so this is why 
we need a Savior because none of us could, could do this on our own. None of us could love God in the way that we ought. None of us could love others in the way that we ought. And so we needed someone who could, who could manage to set things right. And that person was Jesus Christ. And the epistle to the Hebrews testifies to this. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. It says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Now, on the surface reading of that, you know, I have come to do your will, my God, maybe that would sound initially like just mere compliance. But it's interesting, if you go back to the text from which this is being quoted, it's being taken from a psalm, Psalm 40, 6 through 8. There the psalmist writes, Sacrificing and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. When Jesus came to do the will of God, His law was within his heart. A pure love for God. We see this manifested in the moment in which Jesus is anticipating his crucifixion. In Luke 22, verse 42, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. How could he pray that? He wasn't praying that because he's like, okay, I gotta do this. He was able to pray that because he truly loved God. He truly loved the Father. And it was the desire of his heart to do what he willed because their will was shared in common. Likewise, we see that Jesus perfectly fulfills the law to love others as yourself. In Luke 22, and John 15, rather, verse 13, Jesus gives a hint of what he's about to do by saying, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. We can't question Jesus' love for others because he's made it clear by going to the cross. And so by this love, which God has shown for us and which Christ has manifested perfectly in his love for God and his love for us, the door to salvation has been opened to us through Christ. Returning back to Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14, we pick up and it says, And by that will, we have been made holy 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One of the most beautiful phrases in Scripture. Once for all. Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again. You and I don't need to provide the sacrifice. It's been done. It's taken care of. And it's perfect manifestation of love. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all, one, all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It is Jesus who saves us. And his salvation includes the work of restoring us to the kind of people who we were created to be. People who love God and who love others. I quoted this earlier, but I'm going to quote it again um, because it's so powerful. This is, the Apostle John tells us that this is how it is in 1 John 4, 9-10, through 10, verse 19. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because He first loved us. This is the purpose. This is the driving purpose of everything that God has been doing. God has not just loved us in order so that we could just soak up all that love and just keep it for ourselves. God has loved us so that we might love and return in response. There's supposed to be this rebound effect. This is the whole purpose of God's work of redemption and salvation. Because if God is love, then those who are called His children, those who are called His people, must be people of love. You and I are most fully human, most fully who God created us to be when we love. We are sick to the bone when we hate others and when we hate God. And only Jesus can straighten us out. He covers us and He cleanses us. He comes to make us like Himself to make us people who love like Him. All the other commands and instruction that the Bible gives is simply fleshing out what it truly looks like to love God and love others. And this is why love is the greatest command. This is why, before anything else, we must pray that the Holy Spirit would cultivate this love within us. Because without love, we have nothing. Let us pray. Dear Father, 
You are love. Dear Son, You are love. Holy Spirit, You are love. God, You are love because You have manifested this love to us through the sending of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Father, we confess that so often we can miss the forest for the trees. That we look at Your commands and we miss the whole point, which is simply this, that we would love you with all that we are, and that we would just love others in the way that you love them, Father. Father, we confess that we come up short of this, that we don't love you the way that we should, that we don't love others the way that we should, And we know this is the reality, Father, because You had to send Your Son for our salvation. Father, we give thanks that we have both assurance and a hope. The assurance that despite our sins, we are covered because of the perfect love of Jesus Christ. And the hope, Father, that we're not going to be left in this condition that even today, Father, you begin to make us the kind of people we are supposed to be. Father, increase our love for you. Father, make the people of Rockland Community Church, make us a people who passionately love you and who passionately love others. Align our desires, Father, perfectly with your own desires. And give us joy in this because of the love which we share with you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there. Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.